Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. Earlier this year, I decided that I wanted to be a gardener. Not just to garden on occasion or pot the odd plant, but to make gardening a way of life. So I borrowed some books, I did some research, I talked with some people, I bought my own books because I do that anyway, and then I finally got to the step of surveying my yard. And I made some really great plans. I'm gonna plant three blueberry bushes along a fence, I'm gonna put a dwarf cherry tree in the backyard, I'm gonna build three eight by four foot garden boxes for strawberries and vegetables, and all that should keep Janelle satisfied with fruit. And then I'm gonna plant some flower beds along in a couple places, right? So great plans. Now it is mid-May and all I have done so far is bury some lilies in a patch of dirt beside my house. And I do use the word bury intentionally because it felt like I was performing a funeral. <laughs> However, lo and behold, things started to grow in my little garden. In fact, a lot of things started to grow in my little garden. And at first, this was exciting because I figured, hey, it's a garden, so if a flower's going to come up, right? That's what you'd think. To no one's surprise, there's a difference between a plant like a lily and a plant like a dandelion. And I have a lot of dandelions in my garden that want to come up and in my lawn also. Now... Uh, Janelle actually kind of likes them because she's from California and is desperate for anything that resembles the sun. <laughs> but <laughs> I know that if I leave those things unchecked, they're going to take over my garden, kill off my flowers, and then move to my lawn and kill off my grass. And so what I'm going to be left with in the end is this patchy, scraggly, pokey bit of mess that rabbits are going to enjoy but humans are going to hate. And all of this led me to an epiphany about my garden. You see, my garden is not naturally a garden. In fact, if I want to be a wee bit dramatic, my garden is cursed. However, this is biblical, right? So it's not going to be a when we read the Bible, we shouldn't be surprised by this, but it is ironic. And it's ironic because gardening was actually the very first work that God gave humanity to do. And so way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in chapter 2, we find that God takes Adam and places him in the Garden of Eden to work it, i.e. become a gardener. However, not too long after this, humanity decides to rebel against God and in doing so messes up creation. And so the very work that we're given to do becomes cursed. And then in Genesis 3, we find this actual curse where it's something along the lines of curse is the ground because of you and through painful toil, you're going to eat food from it and it's going to give you thistles and thorns and then we could also add dandelions. <laughs> and so the very ground that we're supposed to work no longer naturally yields to us. Gardens don't just happen, right? And in talking about my specific Garden, it is naturally an old marsh that attracts dandelions. That is its most natural state. And this led me to a second epiphany that if I'm going to make my garden a garden, it has to be cultivated. Right? My garden won't just happen naturally. Now, this morning, we are not really talking about gardening. Shocking, I know. 
We're talking about following Jesus, about people, being people who are healthy and formed by him. Because just like gardening, though we were made to be in relationship with God, it's actually not something natural to us. That most naturally we run away from God and we seek to please ourselves, right, in the pursuit of whatever feels good in the moment. None of us are surprised when we see self-centeredness in a child. Doesn't mean we appreciate it, doesn't mean we find it amusing, but we're not surprised because we know it's natural and it's something that has to change. The old dead Christian, Martin Luther, used to describe humanity as curved in on itself, or to use the very fun Latin phrase, incurvatus in se. Um, that's for a party later. Um, and what it means is that everything we do, everything we say, as humans, we naturally just bring it back to us, right? We are the center of our universes. That is what's natural. And if we are going to change from something natural, then something unnatural has to take place. And to bring us back to him, this is precisely what God does, that he sends his son to become human, to die on our behalf, and then to rise from the dead. And for God, that was all natural because I was just working through who he is and his character. But for us, it is so unnatural that we would call it unintelligent, even reckless, and it's hard for us to understand. But in doing so, God saves us from the death that is naturally coming to us. And we're given a new nature and a new heart and a new spirit to help us live as we were created to be. People who are in relationship with God, not just in eternity, but even now. However, our old nature still isn't done away with yet. One day it will be, but not Yet, And this leads us into some problems with how we try to grow. See, one of the problems that we have in the spiritual life is that we still want it to be natural. Because if it's natural, then it's also easy. A while ago, I heard a few examples of, of ways that we try to make things grow. And it's through a couple pictures. The first image is that of a forest. Right? If you want to make a forest grow, all you have to do is step back and just let it happen, right? So you watch and you wait and you accept and you celebrate whatever comes up because everything that comes up in a forest should be natural. But for a forest to truly work, everything natural has to be good. And this forest approach is probably the most common way of we, or that we see development in our society, at least when it comes to how we view our, ourselves because we tend to automatically assume that whatever thought, feeling, or desire we have, no matter how damaging or hurtful it might be to ourselves or others, needs to be accepted because it's real and natural. And so, in order to help people grow, right, the way you do it is through tolerating them, right? That's the method. Or if, if people are going to help us grow, then they just need to leave us alone and let us do whatever we want. And we can see this in all parts of our society. Now, the second picture for how we can try to make things grow is through the image of a garden. Now, in a garden, you know that good and bad things are going to come up, right? Weeds and flowers are both there. But a garden needs to be tended. 
So you nurture the flowers, you fertilize them, water them, throw coffee grounds on them, whatever you do. But then you also remove the weeds, not just because they're ugly or they smell bad, but because you know that those weeds are actually going to keep the flowers from growing more. And for people who like to view themselves as a forest, a garden with its restrictions and pruning and weeding is like death. So we want following Jesus to be natural, but instead our lives most naturally produce death. This doesn't mean that humanity is just a garden box full of weeds because we were made in God's image and we still bear the glory as his image bears. It's just that as another old dead Christian named Athanasius puts it, we're a marred masterpiece. Now, this is what Jesus did come to solve, right? To take our death so that we might have his life. And on top of this, God has given us his spirit to guide, comfort, encourage, and empower. And yet, this still doesn't make following Jesus natural. It makes it possible, but we can't expect it to just happen or to happen easily. The Apostle Paul picks this out through the image of the old self in his letter to a church in Ephesus. And when we read this passage, the first bit of it, he's going to describe the natural state of things, right? The things that we need, actually need to resist. And it's a little bit long. Here it is. Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse 17. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed, right? That is the natural state of our humanity. That, however, Paul says, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, there are a lot of things of interest here, but I just want to point out a few things. First, notice that there is opposition so not only do we still have our old corrupted nature still lurking around within, which Paul elsewhere is going to describe as the flesh, we also, however, face the broken ways of this world that still play to the disordered desires of our broken nature. Now, throughout the capital C church tradition, we have identified three enemies of the soul, of relationship with God, of the spiritual life, and perhaps you've heard of them before. You have the world, you have the flesh, and you have the devil. Now, if we actually keep on reading in this chapter, we find the devil prowling around too. So picking back up in 25, it says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And so not only is our relationship with God unnatural, it's actually opposed on three fronts. Now, one of my forever favorite authors, John Mark Comer of formerly a Bridgetown Church in Portland, 
notes that not only do we have these three enemies, but they actually work in concert together. Right, so the devil offers deceptive ideas. He lies to us. And these lies actually play to our disordered desires, right? They appeal to our nature. And then our desires and our nature are actually normalized and celebrated in a society that is set against God. And so to use the image of a garden, and yes, this is going to be ridiculous, is like my patch of dirt is under assault by a band of feral cats, and the ground itself that I'm trying to grow things in has cat litter mixed into it, so it actually attracts the cats. And then all the gardening books that I read tell me that feral cats are actually an entertaining element to any garden, right? So to say the least, we are in great danger if we assume that being in relationship with God is natural, easy, and safe, because it is none of those things. A second thing that stands out from this passage is that we have to choose to grow. As Paul puts it, we have to put off the old self and then put on this new self, that we have to deny what is natural and choose what is unnatural, or dare I say, supernatural. That we have to reject demonic lies, that we have to deny corrupted desires, and that we have to resist the broken ways of the world. And that's something we find that we are actually responsible for. So here's Paul again, this time talking to a church in ancient Philippi. So this is chapter 2, starting in verse 12. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And so what we find is that not only is our salvation something unnatural to us, but it's also still something that we're responsible for. So Paul actually says to work it out with fear and trembling even, and to use less terrifying terms, we might say that we have to take it very, very seriously. But notice why we're supposed to take it seriously because it is God who is working in you. Imagine that um, tomorrow I decide that I'm going to start my basketball career. I know it's a little late for me, but I'm gonna go for it. And somehow LeBron James hears that I want to be a basketball player and he shows up at my door and says, Sky, I hear you wanna play basketball. You know what, I'm going to be with you the entire way, right? I'm going to invest myself in you. We're gonna practice every day. Like, I am with you, you're not alone in this. Now, at that point, whether I was serious or not, I have no choice but to take basketball very, very, very seriously because LeBron King James is now part of my basketball career. I don't have an option. And LeBron James is not Jesus. Right, so how crazy is it that God gives himself to us, not only as one who dies for our sins, but who is actually living in us and working in us so that we might fully enjoy relationship with him as his children. That is a way bigger deal than basketball and LeBron James. But this also means one more thing for how we cultivate our souls, and it's that we don't do it alone. That if we are to be gardeners, then God is the master gardener whom we work 
alongside. And I think too often we come to a place where we recognize that we need to change, that we recognize we have to do something unnatural, but then we feel overwhelmed because we feel all that weight upon us and we try to go it alone. But in fact, over and over and over again, we are assured that we're not alone, that God is working in us to help form you into the person you were created to be. I think for many of us, we find ourselves struggling because we have treated our souls like forests. We let anything grow there because it's natural and because our culture tells us that it's okay. And I'm not so much just talking about the type of content we allow into our lives, but rather the ways that we tend to justify things like hatred and division and lust and bitterness and unforgiveness and so on. It's like through the lies that we hear and through the commonality of our culture, we convince ourselves that weeds are actually flowers or that a few dandelions aren't gonna harm anything. And yet then we look at our lives and we wonder why we feel so angry all the time or why God feels so very far away or why we feel stuck in cycles of sin and hurt that we can't get out of, why we feel lost and why we feel hopeless. And again, I think for many, though not for all of us, a big part of the problem is that we're treating our souls like forests rather than gardens that we need to cultivate with God. And so this morning, I want to introduce us to a way largely forgotten in the modern church, a way that can help us cultivate our souls with God, a way that our ancient brothers and sisters used to grow with God and enjoy the freedom that we have as his children. Now, the title's a little scary, but this way has been called the spiritual disciplines. The word discipline, if we're honest, leaves us with a foul taste in our mouth more often than not. And that's just what's natural to us speaking, right? The disciplines have also been called the spiritual practices or the spiritual habits. So if you just can't get over the word, you can choose your own adventure with the name at least. But the purpose of these disciplines is actually to bring us freedom. So going back to the two images I used earlier, we have the garden and the forest. Now consider what kills a forest besides fire. What kills a forest is uh, restriction, right? It's this idea that I put limits on it. And if I put limits on a, the growth of a forest, it can no longer be a forest. It's something else. But then what kills a garden besides fire also? What kills a garden, what makes a garden no longer a garden, is actually neglect. Right? So a garden actually needs discipline. It needs restriction. It needs healthy practices of weeding and watering and fertilizing and chucking coffee grounds on it and so on. A garden needs care and attention. And your soul, like a garden, needs the same. It needs healthy practices. Now, the danger of a practice is when it becomes salvation itself, or it's the end unto itself, right? And so one example that I have seen growing up through the church is where the practice of reading your Bible actually replaces relationship with God. Reading your Bible isn't bad. In fact, in some capacity, you need to know your Bible, but it's not going to be Jesus. And so today, we naturally hate discipline 
and we're also very sensitive to the abuses of it. And so to talk about something called the spiritual disciplines is almost stupid of me to try. But remember, just because it is unnatural doesn't mean it's not incredibly good. These things, these practices are simply tools to help you be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus does, to use the language of discipleship. And so these things would be like the shovel or the watering can or the garden hose or the sprinkler system or whatever, the, the little tin you put coffee grounds in that you throw in your garden, all right? They're just the tools of our spiritual garden. So today, I want to introduce us to some of the historic disciplines or practices of the church. Now, this list I'm going to give is not exhaustive, meaning there are way more than what I'm going to say, and neither are they prescriptive, as in I'm telling you, you need to do them. Now, as I go through this list, I want you just to pay attention and notice if any one of them stands out to you for whatever reason, right? You don't have to think too much about it, but just notice, do one of these things actually stand out to me? So here is the list of some practices that have been important for the people of God for a millennia. You have silence and solitude, prayer, fasting, study, simplicity, submission, service, confession, worship, hospitality, and celebration. And actually, I'm going to add another one on there, and it's Sabbath. Okay. So again, just just note, was there any one of those disciplines that just stuck out to you for some, reason, for some reason, and then hold on to it for now? Now, there are a couple of ways that people have tried to make sense of the disciplines or how to organize them, and there are things from like practices of withdrawal to practices of engagement or disciplines that are inward, outward, and corporate, but perhaps the easiest way to understand what these are is that there are some that you do alone with God and then there are some that you do with people, and both are important to cultivate your soul. Now, again, these are just tools. And yes, some of them are so fundamental to relationship with God, that'd be like trying to garden without a shovel. That's true. Doing them or not doing them does not make you a Christian, to be clear. Doing them or not doing them is probably affecting your health, however. So today, what I want to do is just highlight a few of these that are exceptionally odd for us today, not only to introduce you to some potentially helpful practices, but also to give you hope that there are actually things that you can do and try to help cultivate your soul with God. So the first discipline or practice is silence and solitude. And I actually preached on this a while ago, and you can go check out that sermon from March. But silence and solitude is essentially being undistracted with God as creating time and space to be with Jesus. And it's this idea that just like with any relationship, my relationship with Jesus needs quality time. And so this practice is one of the ways to help establish that rhythm in our lives. Now, another practice to highlight is prayer. And it, not because this one is uncommon, but actually because this is a practice I've been wrestling with in my life this season. So growing up, prayer always meant just talking to God and usually asking him for things. And that is fine and good because prayer is essentially communicating with God and talking is important and asking is important. But that's, that's not all that it is. 
And so for this last season, I've been trying out different methods of praying, something called a centering prayer, which as I'm trying to be with Jesus, helps me pull my distracted mind back to him. Or even praying through the Lord's prayer in the sense of like our father who is in heaven and just reflect and then talk to God about who, who he is and his character. Right, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Talking to God about what it means that he's in charge, that he is, that I can trust him, that he's, he knows what's happening, all these things. Or another practice that has been a little strange for me in terms of prayer has been liturgy. Because I've been finding that in times that I actually want to be with God and connect with him, I, I don't always know what to say. And so sometimes it's comforting just to read old prayers of the church when I'm not sure what to pray myself. Now, if you are comfortable singing songs that you did not compose, you can pray prayers that you did not write. It is okay. Another practice, um, and this one is especially fun, is fasting. Uh, Fasting is intentionally giving up food for a time. Now, I know that people talk about fasting for Lent from things like sugar and video games and whatnot, and that's great, but that's actually the practice of abstinence. And yes, abstinence does mean something more than what the 1990s taught us. Oddly enough, for the ancient church, when someone first came to faith in Jesus, they were taught two things right away. They were taught how to pray, and they were taught how to fast. Now, today, that just doesn't make any sense to us because we are a forest and whatever appetite we have has to be satisfied. But for ancient peoples, and not just Christians, you'll also find Plato and Socrates, the great Greek philosophers, talk about fasting as an important way to curb unhealthy appetites and desires. Even today, it is not uncommon for someone who is struggling with a sexual addiction to be counseled to fast just as a way to help them recognize that they can tell their body or their old nature no, right? In fact, in Jesus's day, every good Jew would fast twice a week, every Tuesday and every Thursday from sundown to sundown. And so they would miss twice a week breakfast and lunch, And you'll find this actually referenced a few times in the New Testament. It's just a common practice. Now, uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, this new Christian movement actually continued the practice of fasting, though they moved it to Wednesdays and Fridays because they really wanted to be different, um, as you do. And it wasn't actually until about the 1800s, I think, when fasting actually was no longer a common practice in the church. So we got rid of it fairly recently when we're looking back at the last 2,000 years of our history. And what we find is that fasting is actually one of the better practices for fighting back against our old nature or or this flesh. And it goes back to the idea of Jesus fasting in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil to turn stones into food. And he says, nope, people don't live by food alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's this idea, it's one of these ways that we remind ourselves that what we are most truly dependent on is actually God and not satisfying every desire we have. Another practice to highlight is confession, which, like fasting, is also popular, but one we tend to ignore. Um, And yet, confession is probably one of the most important practices in helping us break the false illusions that we build about ourselves. And it's also one of the better practices for destroying the power that secrets hold over us. Now, 
Confession is actually one of those practices that you do with other people. And so you should talk to God and confess to him, but that's only the first bit of this practice because it also means finding another brother or sister and acknowledging your mistakes, turning away from them and repenting, but then also being granted forgiveness by them on behalf of God. And I've practiced this myself, and for whatever reason, it is something incredibly powerful to have another person tell you you are forgiven in the name of Jesus. Now, there's something that just breaks some of the bondages that sins and secrets can have over us. Now, one last practice to highlight, and it's a more enjoyable one, is celebration. Now, one of the weird things you find as you go through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is how many times God actually commands the Israelites to party. There are a lot of festivals, right? And often the issue is that the Israelites party with other gods rather than wanting to party with, with their god and whatnot, and that's bad. However, the practice of celebration is one that I find especially important for me because I, I've shared in the past that joy is something that really is hard for me to find naturally, that I have to choose it. And so the practice of celebration is this reminder that who God is and what he's done is worth celebrating even when I don't feel like it. In fact, all of these practices aren't really based on how I feel, right? It's this recognition of who God is and what he's done and this desire to be closer to him. So, Hearing these practices, I hope that you start to recognize that there is some paths toward freedom, right? Paths that aren't natural, paths that aren't easy, paths that are going to be actively opposed, paths that you have to choose, but paths towards freedom and being the person that God created you to be. So what then might be next? Well, first, you may realize that you've already been practicing some of these things, Right? That you have already gravitated towards certain rhythms in your life, but maybe you didn't realize that these are actually spiritual activities. And so in that case, step further into them. Right? If you realize that every so often you need to just be alone for five minutes and just to pray, man, silence and solitude right there. Enjoy it. Engage in it. Second, a lot of these things you've probably never heard of before. I hope they're intriguing, but in that case, you need some more information. So... If I was going to recommend one book, it would be this one called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. I know the title is not attractive because we don't like discipline. That's natural. Um, however, a, he gives a really good overview of the various practices and then gentle ways to kind of step into them. Um, I'm going to leave this up front so you can come look at it, not take it. It's mine. Um, and then go find your own copy, because if there is one thing I will not forgive is people taking my books. Um, I'm working on it, I promise. Uh, however, um, if I was, why would I recommend one book when I could recommend two? So here's a second book um, that came out recently called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. And it looks at more of how do we resist these three enemies of the soul through practice? What are some of the practices that can actually help us fight back? So again, this one is available to look at as well. Um, but they'll be up here, so feel free to come peruse them. That is great. All right, now, remember when we first went through the practices, I asked you to, to just notice if one of them stuck out to you. And it may be that God is starting to pull you towards a certain, or a certain thing that you might need in this season. 
right? That maybe he's trying to, to point out, a highlight, a practice that you really need right now. And in that case, instead of trying to find information on all of them, just start with that one. Just explore it. Find a little bit more info and try to step into it. Now, the last step that I'm going to recommend is that you find someone to practice with, right? both for encouragement and accountability. And yes, it's going to mean risk. It's going to be awkward. But remember that cultivating your soul is not natural and it's not easy. And that is okay. So find someone. If you're at a loss as to where to begin, maybe start with looking at some of our connection groups. So you can find a list of those on our website, contact someone, and we can get you connected. Right now, as a matter of encouragement and challenge to everyone here, we have a group of six students who have been meeting for 10 weeks who are exploring some of these practices and also going through a book of the Bible together. And I'm not going to name names because I'm not going to embarrass them this publicly. But I will say that I have been incredibly proud of their courage. In fact, this spring, so we started up a second group that uh, began in April. The first group met from January to March. And this spring, we've been going through the book of James. So far, we have tried out um, or explored the practices of silence and solitude and what it might look like for them in their lives and their Season. We've tried uh, something called Lectio Divina, which is a way to engage scripture. And then this week, believe it or not, and I have confirmation that every single one of them tried it, they all fasted. They all fasted. At, not that they were happy about it, mind you. In fact, they were very unhappy about it. But they recognized that just because they didn't feel like it didn't mean that it wasn't something that could be incredibly good. That is a way for them to acknowledge that their dependence is first and foremost in Jesus. And I will also say that if, because they fasted, I had to as well. And if they weren't, I was definitely not going to do it myself. And so there was an issue of I was held accountable by a bunch of teenagers. Well, they're not all teenagers. One of them, a couple of them are preteens. So I was held accountable, right? And sometimes that is what we need. We need relationships that help us do that. Now, one last thing to bear in mind before we end today, and it's found in a third way that we try to grow things, All right? So we have the image of the garden, we have the image of a forest, and then there's a third image, and that is a factory. And unlike a garden or a forest, a factory believes that everything has to come out the same, right? That growth has to look the same, that results are going to be the same. Now, going back to my garden that I'm trying to grow, if I took the factory approach, it would mean peeking over my fence at my neighbor's garden and then probably going out and buying a bunch of fake plants because fake plants are going to make sure that my garden always looks as it should. Now, the thing that kills a factory, besides also a fire, because that kills everything, the thing that kills a factory is difference. Because if different things are being produced in a factory, that means the machinery is broken, right? Now, today, this is very strange. We want to view ourselves as forests, where we just step back and let everything grow as it does. But then we also want everyone to look, act, think, and feel like us. And so in a strange paradox, in our cultural moment, our, we want to be factories and turn them into, or sorry, we want to be forests that turn everything into a factory. Doesn't work, promise. Oops, oh, too many books up here. All right, but in a garden, 
difference is actually something good, right? And so your garden should not look the same as everyone else's garden, right? And yes, there's the caveat that in the Christian life, there should be some big common elements to every believer, right? There should always be some engagement with God's word. We should always have the spirit and then we should always be engaging God's people, right? But how we do that may look different from person to person. Or for another strange example, right? We should all be brushing our teeth, but for some of us, we like mint, some of us need cinnamon, and some of us, for whatever reason, like lavender-flavored toothpaste, which sounds disgusting, right? But it's okay, right? It's okay to be different in that. And then with the same thing, with the practices, don't expect that you're going to engage in or engage them in the same way as the person sitting next to you. Right? For example, silence and solitude for you may look like jogging around Lake Sacagawea, right? Or it could mean taking two minutes in between classes and finding a chair to sit in and just be with God and remember that he's with you. Or maybe it's five minutes face down on the sofa after you put the kids to bed. All of those are ways that you can engage in silence and solitude and be with Jesus. They're all okay. And it may look different in each season of your life, right? So don't try to copy what you did last year if it's not working. That is okay. Another one, my favorite, is how we engage the Bible. Growing up, when people talked about you need to read your Bible, they meant one thing and one thing only. It meant that at 6 a.m., right, you would read four chapters, starting in Genesis, going through Revelation, and starting over again. You would do this every day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, every year until you died, right? That was the practice of reading your Bible. And for some of us, I mean, for some of us, great, that might be what you need, but for some of us, it's going to make us die sooner. And that's okay. It doesn't mean you're terrible Christians and hate your Bible. It just means that's not the way you're made to connect with God, okay? So my encouragement is as you approach the practices, do so with freedom, and then through them, find freedom. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that you're always with us and that in our journey with you, you never abandon us that you are alongside us and that you are actively investing yourself in our lives and in our relationships so that we might be children who know freedom with you. This week, would you give us the courage to step out, right, to explore some of the practices that you might be drawing attention to in our minds, that we'd be willing to seek others out for encouragement, for accountability, and that through this process, knowing that it's not going to be natural or easy, that we're going to find opposition, that we have to keep choosing it, but that through them that we can find freedom in being more and more like you as we be with you and do the things that you do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.